Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. That's a way to start off a new month. How about that? Well, that's very exciting. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you don't already know me, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Um, pastor Joe and Pastor Janice are out this morning. We're going with it's a work trip because every time we say vacation, something happens. So they're on a work trip uh, and I get to be with you. So uh, last week we finished up the series that we're in called Building a Home, which I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that or watch those messages. They're available on our podcast app um, or the Apple podcast app or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, you can also go online to our website and watch those there, but I would encourage you to do that. And that leaves us today in our longest running series that we like to call around here, Not a Series. Um, and my wife was asking me, is it easier to uh, get an assignment, so to speak, or to just be able to choose? And the answer is yes, because uh, they both have their challenges. But um, I've just decided to kind of take a few hints from life, uh, because all of the following have happened in the last, like, month or two. Um, first of all, and the most exciting for me personally, is my wife and I got to welcome our first uh, daughter into the world in the beginning of June, and that was great. Thank you so much. Um, then we had Wild Week in the middle of July, and we've had uh, high school and middle school kids going off to Bethel camp and coming back and talking about that. And um, we also, you know, as Jay was mentioning in the announcements this morning, we've been talking about this next season of, of our reckless student ministry and what that can be like. So all roads in my head and in my heart have kind of led to where I want to go with you today. So uh, we're going to have scripture up on the screen if you don't have your Bible or your Bible app. But if you do, I would encourage you to get those out. And we're going to go to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 18 verses 1 through 6. It'll be up here on the screen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea and all lived happily ever after. Amen. Um, so before we jump into the, the kind of meat of the, the message today, I want to just put out a couple of thoughts and notes on this passage beforehand. So Way back in the day, in the, in the heyday of college boys starting uh, bands with their acoustic guitars, there was this band called Jars of Clay, and I grew up listening to Jars of Clay, and I loved them a lot, and they have this song called Faith Like a Child, and when I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about that song, and I was thinking about that phrase, Faith Like a Child, and we talk about having a childlike faith. I hate to break it to you, but that's not really what this passage is about. It's not so much a passage about faith, it's more of a, a passage about your posture or your position or how you hold yourself and how you think of yourself in relation to God. Because when we see this, when we see Jesus saying this, that you have to become like a child, we, we have to back up and say, okay, what was the child like in that day and age? How did they see children in their culture? And if we scooch ahead a little bit in the New Testament to the book of Galatians, in the fourth chapter, Paul is talking about uh, um, inheritance, and he's talking about heirs. And he says that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. 
though he's the owner of everything, but he's put under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. So this is the deal. His children, for, for lack of a better way of saying it, it's probably a crass way to say it, but they're kind of like property in the sense that they were to be managed, they were to be uh, supervised, they didn't get much of a say in how things happened, they, they didn't have much authority or anything like that. They were just kind of there to grow up, and then when they grew up, then they would do the things that they were, you know, supposed to do as adults. But in the passage we have, we have the disciples, and they're bickering about who's going to be the greatest. Um, I chose the Matthew one, but I thought about the Mark one, because in Mark's account of this particular happening, uh, the disciples, they say, actually, were, were uh, arguing about this as they were walking along, and then Jesus is like, hey, guys, what you talking about? And they get kind of sheepish, and they're like, nothing, Lord, and then Jesus says all of this, because the disciples still had this understanding, which we, with the benefit of hindsight, know was wrong, but they had this understanding that Jesus was going to, uh, to, to inaugurate his kingdom in a very physical sense, and he was going to have uh, like an administration, okay, just to put it in our context. Uh, and so we were going to have President Jesus, King Jesus really, but uh, we were going to have a vice president. And, you know, John thought that Jesus loved him the most, so he said, yeah, I'm going to be vice president. And then he needed to have a chief of staff, and, you know, Peter's all about whipping people around, and he said, I'm going to be the chief of staff. And Jesus was going to need a treasury secretary. And Judas said, ooh, me, please, I'll be the treasury secretary. And, you know, he was going to need a secretary of defense and on down the line. But Jesus comes along and he has to say, wait, 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 wait. You guys want all this power. You want all this, you know, this authority and all this. But that's not what my kingdom's really about. And we'll get into that more. Uh, but the next thing I want to note before we get into the, the, the main meat of the passage is that this is urgent. Okay. It's easy for us to read this and to see, uh, to see Jesus saying something. And we're like, oh, what a novel idea. That's kind of nice. That's kind of different. Let me put on that paradigm shift. Like, okay, I'll become a little bit more like a child. Thanks, Jesus. That's a good idea. But did you miss the part where he said, unless you do this, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven? So if we want to be a part of what God's doing in the world, if we want to be uh, ambassadors of his kingdom, we have to do this. It is imperative. It is not an option for us to become like this. So Jesus is saying you have to lay down your desire to have a say. You have to lay down your desire to be somebody, and you have to become nobody. You have to become submissive and, 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 and essentially something to be managed and overseen if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And one of my favorite details about this, and I think Jesus is so merciful in saying this, he said, you have to become like. Because Jesus recognizes that it's in our nature not to be what we're supposed to be when we're supposed to be it. You know what I mean? Have you ever thought about the way that we get childhood and adulthood mixed up? Okay, as I was thinking about this thing, it, it, it made me think of the, the following paradox. So on one hand, in some places, fourth graders are learning sex education. But then, on the other hand, if you take the, the average video game player, I'm going to hurt some feelings here, including my own, he is 33 years old, he plays for eight hours a day, and he is a male. Okay? So, you got grown-ups who are supposed to be doing grown-up things, and they're playing video games, and you got, you got kids learning things that they probably don't need to worry about learning just yet. Or my generation... Um, 
thinks a lot in my generation. We invented this word, which is not a word, okay? Let me stand on that soapbox for a second. Where, you know, whenever we're doing anything that we're responsible for, so we're, you know, paying our, you know, gas bill or electric bill or, you know, taking care of our car insurance or health insurance, going to the doctor, we say, I've got such a busy day, I'm just adulting so hard. Right? That's not a word, okay? You're just doing what you're supposed to do. Anyway, I'm not here to pick on anybody. I'm just saying we get it mixed up sometimes. Am I right? So as we have this in mind, let's look at three things that we want to turn from and three things that we want to turn to. So first of all, and this is my longest point, so bear with me. First of all, we want to turn from complication to simplicity. And I want to talk about this in three different areas. So if you're taking notes, that's point one. We're going to have sub one, sub two, sub three. Okay. So we're going to turn from complication to simplicity. First of all, in the area of prayer. Okay, this will be my last plug for our student ministry. Um, Reckless, we meet on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. If you're in sixth grade to twelfth grade, please come. It's going to be an amazing time. But what I love about working with students is in our guys group. We have our we have our small group, and then at the end of our time together, we do prayer requests, and then we pray together. And we always say, "Who wants to pray?" And we have one student who's like, ooh, me, 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 I want to pray. And then we have to say, okay, you can pray next week, but someone else pray. And invariably, invariably, the prayer goes something like this. Dear Jesus, um, we just pray that um, you would help us, and we pray that you would make Johnny's mom feel better, and we pray that Billy would get a good grade on his test, and we pray that you would help us all to get to know you better. Amen. And I love that, okay, because it's not complicated. I mentioned uh, earlier that we just had our first child, and if you don't already know this about babies, turns out the babies cry, okay? Newsflash. All right, so and here's, what, here's what happens. If you are holding someone else's baby, and, uh, and, and it starts to cry, you feel uncomfortable. I get it, okay? You feel uncomfortable, so what do you do? You, you kind of look at them and you're like, I hope, I hope that your mom sees that you're crying right now. And you say something to this effect. You say, your life must be so hard. All you do is you eat and you sleep and you poop and you cry. What a difficult life. Uh-huh. Because, but that's, that's not why it's hard. It's difficult because babies can't talk. Okay? Babies don't know how to communicate with you. A baby can't come up to you and say, excuse me, I have a dirty diaper. I need you to change it, please. The only, their default is to just cry and they wail. But here's the great thing. It's an all-encompassing cry, okay? When you're taking care of a baby, you can pretty much assume that a cry means one of the following. Um, they are hungry. They are tired. They, are, uh, they have a dirty diaper. They are um, thirsty. They're cold, whatever. They're just generally uncomfortable, and they're crying, hoping, trusting that someone is going to pay attention to them, and someone is going to come and, uh, and take care of their need. Okay? That's what babies do. But we as adults, when we pray, we think that we have to get these like laser-focused prayers about exactly what God would want to do and exactly how God's going to do it, and we, we feel like we have to like walk God through what exactly he needs to do. Have you ever been around those people? And, and if you're one of these people, it's fine. I'm just just throwing this out here, okay? These people who, like, make it sound like they've got a degree in, like, neurology or rocket science, and they're like, 
Lord, we just pray that the, that the nerve endings would start to communicate and that the, you know, the, the neurons would fire and we pray that the blood vessels would expand or contract or whatever. I'm not a physician, but you know what I mean? Like we, we get in this mode where we're like, okay, I have to pray this just right and I have to make it to where God totally, totally understands me. But that's not really what you have to do. Okay, I think we could probably all stand to come back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Probably some of you know where I'm going with this. Jesus is speaking and he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, because they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. So, I'm here to encourage you today. If you don't like to pray or if you struggle to pray because other people are super spiritual and they do it better than you, you don't have to be like that. You don't get bonus points for all the words that you use in your prayer. This isn't college where you have to, you know, write a five-page paper about what you need. You can just say, Lord, help. And he hears and he understands that and he hears our prayers. Prayer is an all-encompassing language that covers what I like to call our flaps. This is so clever, write it down. Okay? It's not. Um, but our flaps, so fear, loss, anxiety, pain, and sin. Covers all of that, and we can treat it as such. Next, I think that we sometimes overcomplicate worship. So I don't know about you, but when I read Psalm chapter 84, which is a, a psalm all about joy, and it's about longing, and it's about worship for, for God and his presence, and, and I read that sometimes, and I'm like, man, I really wish that I felt that way more. Okay, so let's go to it. Psalm 84, I'm going to read the first two verses, and then we're going to skip down to verse 10. This is what it says. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And then we scooch down to, to verse 10, and it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So let me ask you this morning, when you worship, is it a duty or is it a delight? Do you remember how when you were a kid, the things that you enjoyed lasted forever? Okay, I remember like the last day of sixth grade, I was leaving school and I was going to my friend Sam's house and we were going to eat pizza and we were going to have snacks and we were going to play Super Smash Brothers and Super Monkey Ball and like Metroid Prime and all those fun games. And that was like the greatest day of my life. That day lasted forever, even though I just slept over for one night. You know what I mean? Or when you have a kid, when, when you are a kid and you go to a place like uh, Champs or like Malibu Jacks or something like that. You spend like 30 minutes to an hour there, and it's like the best part of your day, and that you, you pack so much fun into those 30 minutes or one hour. But then when you're an adult and you're taking your kid, you're like, what the heck? I just paid $2 for you to throw basketballs for like 30 seconds. Do you understand what a waste of my time and money this is? But for the kid, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to them. What's it going to take for us to get back to worship being like that? What's it going to take for us to move past, you know, thinking about how loud the music is or thinking about how we just did this song last week or we've done it so many times in the last month or so or like that person was trying to sing harmony but they missed their first note and that was rough or whatever. What's it going to take for us to move past that and to just enjoy the presence of God? Do you ever think about what you're singing? Do you ever think about what you're doing? I want to take a line from, from one of the songs we did this morning. Sometimes I do an exercise and I want to share it with you. And I don't do it enough, 
so don't think that I'm like super special or anything. But we, we, I'm going to take a line, and let's just think about it for a second, okay? We sang, you took on the grave. So when Jesus died, when Jesus got buried in the tomb, it was Jesus versus death. It was Jesus against the thing that most people fear the most, okay? And then it says, so not even death can shake us. So my confidence in what God has done for me, my, my status with God is unshakable even by death. Then we sing, the victor has won. He already did it. It's not in question anymore. He has won. He will win. And he is winning right now. And then we see heaven has come. So God is no longer the separate person in the separate place away from us, but he actually came down and he took on a body and he came and he lived with us. And now you're taking us higher. So I don't have to, whatever I came in with this morning, whatever is happening in my life right now, I can be taken higher than that. I can move past that. I can be transformed from glory to glory to glory. There's hope for me. I am able to change by grace. But so often we just skip past these words and we don't actually think about what we're saying. It's amazing when you think about what worship really is, that we get to come into the presence of God, a holy God, a living God, an active God. And we get to worship him. We get to pray to him. We get to hear from him. Even if we had a rough morning, even if we had a rough night, even if we did something stupid last night, even if we did something dumb last week or last month or last year or whatever, we can bring all that in and we can have an encounter with God. And that is an amazing thing. So we want to take worship. We want to take prayer. We want to just uncomplicate it. We want to break all the layers off of it and just come and enjoy the presence of God so that we too can say, a day in your course is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Next up, I think we complicate uh, knowledge, doctrine, theology. I don't know what word you want to use for that, but uh, I think we complicate the conclusions that we draw from Scripture at times. So let me tell you uh, two sides of the same coin. So when I was first coming on staff here and I was getting to know people, there was a young man and he approached me and he said, hey, um, I've been thinking about this thing. I was wondering if you'd like to ha come have a conversation with me. And I said, sure. He said, I want to know what you think about predestination. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what I think about predestination. I just haven't spent enough time thinking about that, you know, if, if you've never done that either, uh, some people get this idea, it's out, it's out of uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8, where Paul uses the word predestined or predestination, and at risk of oversimplifying the conversation, feel free to send me your emails, jpolling at vineyardrichmond.com, I'm sure I'm going to get something wrong, uh, but at risk of, 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 of oversimplifying it, what it kind of comes down to is, does God predestine who's going to be saved? And he knows that from the beginning of time and nothing that can ever happen can remove their salvation. You might have heard of this as like once saved, always saved. Um, or do we have a choice? Does it not matter? And, and then like if, if you do get saved, but you weren't one of the predestined ones, then what happens to you? Because like you weren't predestined to be saved, but you made the choice to, 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 to submit to Jesus' lordship. So then what happens? And honestly, the, the further and further down that particular line of doctrine I get, the more my head spins and I feel like I'm in like a Christopher Nolan movie, like Inception's happening or something, because I just get so confused because 
When I look at the Bible and I see God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life, there it is. Or when I read, it shall come to pass in those days that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To me, that seems pretty clear. But we're taking this thing like salvation and we're complicating it and convoluting it and and making it really confusing and hard to approach. But then sometimes we take scripture and we twist it to actually just mean something else. Okay, I recently um, read a book where a guy, the, the, the author of the book, he takes these six passages that he calls the clobber passages, which are essentially um, a pretty conservative evangelical view of human sexuality. And he, uh, he pulls back the curtain and he kind of does an Inigo Montoya and he says, I do not think that means what you think it means. Okay, and... and in my opinion, it's very convenient how he arrives at these conclusions, and they, it kind of seems like what I like to call hermeneutical gymnastics, where you just, I don't know how you got there, but you got there. But here's the deal. I don't think that you need loads and loads and loads and loads of Scripture to support your doctrine on something, okay? If Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, that in the beginning God made them male and female, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I think that's what it means. Okay, I think that's the design. When I look back at the garden, when I look at the fall specifically, and I see that at the fall, at the time that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, everything bad about life, all sin and all death entered at that moment, and then I just step back a little bit more, and I look before the fall happened, I see a man and a woman. I'm just saying, I'm not here to throw rocks because I don't think that that's our business, okay? If someone espouses this particular view of human sexuality, which I do and this church does, it's not to be mean. We're trying to be faithful to what we see in Scripture, and God did not change his mind all of a sudden because we made some mistakes. He didn't see this point in time and say, okay, fine, I guess that's cool, that's fine, that'll work, yeah, I'll I'll take that, that's fine. No, he, he invites us to come as we are, but not to stay that way. Jesus takes people in sin, and he says, okay, I don't condemn you anymore. Now go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. There is nowhere in Scripture that invites us to throw rocks at people and to judge people and to condemn people, and especially not to do it with a smile on our face. There are people in the world that just, they live for this, just to put people down and just to call people out, and that's not how Jesus did it. Okay, So there's nowhere that we get to twist Scripture to mean what we want it to mean. If Jesus says, feed the poor, that's what he means. If he says, clothe the naked, that's what he means. If he says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that's what he means. If he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that's what Jesus means. It's not very complicated. Now, Let me toss an asterisk on, because this is the kind of person that I am, okay? Children learn, and children aim to understand. And so I'm I'm not here to say you have to take it and never ask questions, okay? We all know that, like, toddlers especially are like, why, 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 why? And then finally get to this point where, like, because I said so, right? Ultimately, our questions all have to come back to this point where it's like, listen, God said it. I don't like it, but God said it, and I don't get to throw it out just because I don't like it. We're meant to be obedient, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. All right, that's all point number one. 
Okay? Let's move on. Point number two. We want to turn from criticism to service. So there's a, a pretty big community of people in the podcast realm and on YouTube, and I call them my, uh, my theological watchdogs. And if you've never watched their videos or heard their podcasts or anything, it's simultaneously really entertaining, but also incredibly disheartening because there are these people and they have a lot of talent. They clearly know how to like edit videos and they're good at talking and they clearly know scripture, at least cognitively, right? But here's what they spend their time doing. Instead of doing creative, effective, encouraging gospel presentations, they make hour-long videos about like prominent people and videos that they saw, and they just tear them to shreds. And here are a few of my favorite examples. This prominent preacher is actually part of the Illuminati. Or, <laughs> you can laugh, it's okay. Or, this pastor actually hates white people. Or, this pastor is scamming you. Or, this guy is a false teacher, but my absolute favorite is, uh, you know, this guy, and he, he's setting it all up, and he goes, okay, now, now look at this video here, and we're going to show you how this church with the dance ministry, the dance that they're actually doing is an ancient Near Eastern demon summoning ritual. And it's like, dude, how do you have this much time on your hands, and how do you have this much passion just for, like, tearing other people apart? You have better things to do with your time. Now, is there a place where we monitor our practices and our doctrine? absolutely, okay? John writes in 1 John chapter 4, don't just believe every spirit, but test it to make sure that it's from God, okay? We see in the books of, book of Acts that people can improperly invoke the name of Jesus. You ever heard of the sons of Sceva and how they heard about Jesus and they're like, oh, we're going to try that. And so they go and they try to cast demons out of people in the name of Jesus, but the demon's like, hey, I know who you're talking about with Paul and I know Jesus, but who the heck are you? And then the scripture says that the demons overtook them and they left running uh, buck naked. And it's a funny and very sad account. Um, but, but later on in the book of Acts, we see this man named Apollos. And Apollos is described as being well-versed in the scriptures and he's fervent and he's a good speaker and all this. So he's standing in a public place and he's preaching and he's teaching. Um, but his theology is a little bit off because he wasn't familiar with the baptism of Jesus. He only knew the baptism of John. So he was out teaching the baptism of of John. And so you have Priscilla and Aquila, who are some early church leaders, and um, the scripture says that they stood up in the middle of the place and they yelled at the guy and they trashed him in front of everyone. Except that's not how the scripture goes. What they did was they said, hey, Apollos, we see that you're a talented guy. We see what you're doing here. We're going to pull you aside. We're going to correct your teaching a little bit because you're off just a little bit but we want to make sure that you get it right because you're good at this. And so they send him out after they teach him and he does a lot of good and he encourages a lot of believers and, and it's a good thing. Okay, Paul encourages Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep a close eye on yourself and on the teaching. A little earlier, he tells him, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. At the end of his letter, he tells him to avoid irreverent babble and what some people call knowledge, which can actually make people swerve away from the faith. And that's not what we're interested in. We don't want to do that, okay? We don't want to get so involved in these little rabbit trails and criticisms that we actually end up leading people away. We want to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So instead of being critical, 
which we can be critical about a lot of things. I just chose my theological watchdog friends, but we do this about worship. We do this about preaching. Some of you probably would preach this message differently than I would, and that's okay. But, but we do this. We, we criticize people about a lot of things. But how about instead of that, let's point out the, the main thing. Let's, let, let's, let's continue on in what we've learned and been assured of. Christ crucified, Christ raised, the Holy Spirit sent to work in us and through us. Let's serve each other because, as Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Last point, number three. We want to turn from childishness to childlikeness. Okay? In a nutshell, the gospel is this. Jesus came in our place because as we were born, we were born sinners. We were born separated from and alienated from the family of God. And there was no way for us to breach that, that chasm on our own. And so Jesus had to come and he did it for us and he did it in our place. And through belief in Christ, we are given the spirit of adoption. We are brought into the family of God. And I want to be careful just to point something out here. And I want to word it well, so help me, Holy Spirit. We throw around this term, child of God, pretty willy-nilly. And we just say, oh, well, everyone's a child of God. But that's actually kind of universalism. Okay, You're a child of God through faith in Christ. We are adopted through Christ. Because if, if that weren't the case, if everyone were just the child of God, there would be no repent and be baptized. There would be no go and sin no more. There would be no go and make disciples. The, the whole idea is that there are some who are far off and we want to tell them the gospel and bring them in. But I digress. So through Christ, we become children of God. And I think that it's important as we conclude this morning, we want to distinguish which characteristics of children we actually want to emulate and which ones that we don't. Okay? Because there is a difference between, between being childish and being childlike. Okay? If you look in the dictionary or on dictionary.com, you'll see that childish means of, like, or befitting a child. Puerile, weak, and silly. I don't even know what puerile means, but it doesn't sound good. Okay? Childlike, on the other hand, means like a child as in innocence and frankness. So here's the deal. Childish people reject authority. They pick petty and petulant arguments. They never grow up. They never seek to learn. And they think they're a bigger deal than they really are. Childlike people, on the other hand, obey in loving submission to God. They pick their battles wisely. They're always seeking to grow they ask constructive why questions. And ultimately, they understand their relationship to their father. If you, if you go through the New Testament, if you go to BibleGateway.com and look up the word child, this is, where I, this is how I got some of these things. I'm pulling back the curtain for you a little bit. Let's take a look at how the, the New Testament talks about believers in Jesus Christ as being children. Okay, So first of all, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So in other words, there was something that used to be, and there's what is now. And we don't want to be conformed to what used to be. We want to stay in what is now. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
So the first thing we see is that God's children obey. Move on a little later in Peter's letter, and he says, in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the second thing we see is God's children grow. Hebrews 12, 7 through 9, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So God's children are corrected. They're disciplined. And then final thing I want to share with you. 1 John 3.10 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the final things we see are that God's children practice righteousness and that God's children love. Friends, it means something for us to be in the family of God. It means something for us to be a child of God. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you have to get all your ducks in a row and cross all your T's and dot all your I's. But it means you're pointing in Jesus' direction. It means that you want to grow. It means that you want to obey. It means that you want to see what he's doing. It means that you want to be a part of what he's doing. It means that God's our Father and we don't get to take advantage of him. There is no place where we get to call the shots and tell God what we want him to do. We don't get to tell God what we want to be okay and what's not to be okay. There's a place where where we get corrected and we get convicted of our sin. And I know those get thrown around like bad words and it sounds so mean and it sounds so rough, but here's the deal. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that is good news this morning. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know how today's message hit you. But here are a couple of my theories. Maybe some of you are in a place where for a really long time you have been rejecting the prompting of God, where he's been trying to get you to recognize something. He's been trying to get you to to, to repent of a sin or to change your mind about something. And you keep saying, no, Lord, no, Lord, no, Lord. But in the deepest parts of you where the Holy Spirit's working, you know that you have to submit. You know that you need to obey. You know that you need to say, Okay, Lord, and it might hurt, it might be tough, it may not be fun, but at the end of the day, that creates cognitive dissonance if we don't do something about it. And I was a psych major in college, so I know a tiny little bit of, a a tiny thing or two about this, and that makes cortisol run through your brain, and you're stressed out, and you're not healthy, and that's not good. So we don't want to be there. Maybe today's the day where you say, okay, Lord, I repent. Maybe you're in a place this morning where you just need to be absolutely assured that God is not mad at you. (laughs) That you've done things and you feel like you can't move past it. You feel like you can't move past it. You feel like you can't ever be free from it and, 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 and be free in Jesus. But today is the day that you get to come and you get to understand. You get to have the Father wrap his arms around you and say, I love you. I've brought you in. I've paid the price for that. It's okay. I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. Maybe you're in a place this morning where you're just feeling kind of stagnant, where you feel like you're not growing anymore, where you feel like you're not 
learning, you're, 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 you're coming and you're going through the motions and all that, but you just want to be shaken up and stirred up. If that's you this morning, if any of those are you this morning, I want to encourage you to come pray as we sing this last song. Because these people are up here to pray with you. It's not their job, it's their joy. They love to do it. And it's an amazing thing that we get to enter into the throne room of God boldly, with confidence, because of what Jesus has done for us. And I just want to encourage you, don't miss out on this. Okay, Jesus says, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that. So I want to invite you to come and pray as we sing this last song. But for now, let's just take a moment and let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can come before you. God, I thank you that you've made a way for us. I thank you, God, that there's forgiveness and there's new life in you. We thank you, Father, that you make it possible for us to be called your children. We thank you, God, that you stand ready to forgive us, ready to shake us up, ready to to invite us into a relationship with you that is going to change and transform everything about our lives. And we thank you for that. So God, as we come this morning, we come to you hungry. We come to you expectant to see what you are going to do. And we look forward to that. We want to be a part of it. So would you come, Holy Spirit, be at work in this place as we worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Together we say, amen. All right, church, let's go ahead and stand up. Let's sing this last song together.